again, as we do every week, let's ask God to give us understanding of his word, for understanding comes from him. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that you would this morning shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in our hearts so that we would trust him and give him the praise and worship that he deserves and so that we would see you, we would know you and your glory in the face of Christ. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and be filled with thankfulness to you, our Saviour God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. Who then is this? The question of the identity of Jesus, who he is, was raised throughout Jesus' ministry in first century Palestine by the things he said and did giving sight to the blind, making the deaf hear, raising the dead, stilling storms, casting out demons, feeding thousands, forgiving sins and speaking of God as his father. And if you'd heard him speak of himself, witness those events, it's a question you would be asking yourself, isn't it? Who is this man, Jesus, who looks like me, speaks like me, yet says and does things that no other man can. But the question of Jesus' identity is not just raised by Jesus' ministry, it is also answered in Jesus' ministry, in his words and actions, especially in his crucifixion, resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit of God. An answer proclaimed in the Christian gospel, the living God's message for the world. When the Spirit is poured out, Peter concludes his explanation of what is happening by saying something big about Jesus. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the Apostle Paul says that making a confession of who Jesus is is central to being saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Apostle John tells us he has written his gospel so that his readers would come to a conviction of who Jesus is. These things are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Who is Jesus? According to the Apostles, he is Lord Christ or Messiah, Son of God. And what makes us Christians is sharing the apostles' convictions about who Jesus is. And as the Nicene Creed that we're working our way through starts with Jesus, uh, starts with its confession of Jesus as 
Jesus, the Son of God, that's where we're going to focus today. Jesus, the Son of God. And from the beginning, believers have been convinced that when they confess the Lord Jesus to be Son of God, they are confessing something more than that he's an exalted man, someone adopted as God's son, someone who is more than an ordinary man who for his faithfulness was given the title son of God as a reward, as a kind of earned honour. And we believe that from the beginning because the apostles were taught by Jesus that he is the eternal son become flesh, God present amongst them even if they didn't get it at first. But Jesus did teach. Jesus spoke of God as his father and of himself as his son. We looked at that last week when questioned about healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus said, my father is still working and I am working also. And the Jews who heard him got the point. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, Jesus is in a dangerous, deadly situation. And he could have said, no, no, you've got it all wrong. I never meant what you're thinking I'm saying. But actually, as we read on, we see Jesus just gets himself into more trouble by what he says. He doesn't try to get himself out of trouble. Gets himself into more trouble by saying things like, truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And then going on to say that the father has shared all things with him, including having life in himself, giving life and judging with the purpose that all may honour the son, even as they honour the father. Now, that is not an apologetic clarification, is it? but an assertion of his unique relationship and glory as the only son of the Father. Later in John's Gospel, because Jesus keeps saying these things and keeps getting himself into trouble, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. And again, in the face of their determination to stone him, Jesus doesn't back down, but justifies calling himself son of God from the scriptures and says, Know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus taught he was the unique Son. And more, he taught that he'd been sent into the world. He says to his hearers, if God were your Father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. He taught he was someone who was, well, pre-existed before his human birth. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And yes, someone who had the glory of God's Son in eternity. John 17, now, Father, Jesus prayed, glorify me in your presence. <clears throat> with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, notice, that's a glory that was his in eternity as son, not anything earned by obedience on earth. And Jesus claimed he exercised the authority of God on earth and not just over nature. Speaking to the paralysed man who lowered through the roof by his friends, Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
But some of the scribes there, well, in fact, they raised the right question. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus replied, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat and went out. Now that's not backing down from a claim to exercise God's authority on earth, but a demonstration of it. Jesus taught that he had come from God, was the son of the father existing in glory before time began, who did God's work with God's authority and spoke God's word because he was the son of God who's with God. And the apostles taught by the Lord Jesus through his spirit, taught in turn that Jesus is God and man, the eternal son of God who is God, taking on our life in full, becoming flesh. Consider the beginning of John's gospel that you heard. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In the beginning, the word is already there with God and the word is God while not all the God there is because the word is with God. And all things, we are told, come into being through him. And as you heard, this word becomes flesh, becomes one of us while still being the eternal word who is God, while still being, verse 18, the unique, the one and only son who can uniquely reveal the father. Listen to Paul again, writing to the Philippians. Adopt the same attitude, he says to them, as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Hear what Paul says, Christ Jesus exists in the form of God before he became a man, where form is not contrasted as we do with substance, implying that he only had the appearance of God. No, form has the sense of being God, having the reality of God and so having equality with God. But in the incarnation, the son who is equal to God pours himself out, empties himself of his dignity, status and privilege and humbles himself to take the form of a servant, that is, to become truly a human, a man. And he becomes a man, he becomes human, not by subtraction or exchange of his being God for being human, not by ceasing to exist as God, but by addition, 
taking on the likeness of our humanity, becoming genuinely human, the eternal Son of God taking on our flesh, Jesus, God and man, so that he could die on a cross. Or again, the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Verse 2, the Son is heir, that is, legally entitled to all things. Whatever God has, the Son has. And the Son is before the universe, and it everything is made through him. And then verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. As the rays of the sun in the sky are in unbroken connection with the sun and the way we truly experience the sun, so the Son of God is the radiance of God's glory in unbroken connection with God and the way we know, experience God. And this is a knowing and experience of the truth of God because he is the exact representation of his nature, bearing in himself truly the character of God. We get God in Jesus. In fact, even that basic confession of Jesus as Lord is more than a confession that he's a rival to Caesar or that he's boss, a man with power. It is that in Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has come to save. You see, verse 9, the Lord we confess, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, is the Lord, verse 13, we call upon everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And who is the Lord of verse 13? Well, that is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, whom Joel says, Joel chapter 2, will save all who call on him on the day of the Lord. Then everyone, writes Joel, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On calling on the Lord, Jesus, we are calling on God. And in confessing Jesus as Lord, we are confessing him as God, ruler of the universe. That Jesus is the Son of God who has God become flesh, the Son of God incarnate, and that's what incarnate means, becomes flesh, is our confession and it's the basis of our conviction that in Jesus we believers hear the word of God. God making himself known. And we hear in Jesus the final word, that we cannot know more of God than we can know in Jesus, for he is the Son in whom the fullness of God dwells. Oh, it's the basis of our conviction that Jesus exercises the authority of God. And so our forgiveness is secure with no one able to overturn his verdict. His verdict is the verdict of God, the verdict of the last day. Oh, our confession of Jesus as the Son of God, God become flesh, is the basis of our conviction that the love we confess to have come to know in saying Jesus has died for our sins to give us life is actually the love of the eternal God, the love of the Father and the Son. 
and that we are brought into family relationship, intimate relationship with the living God by trusting Jesus, the Son, where we become in Christ his children and can truly call the eternal God our Father. Now, of course, I realise, because it does this to me, all that may be making your head spin, right? Especially if you're just finding out about Jesus, just starting to come to terms with what he says and does and have never really thought hard about who Jesus is before. Or it might make your head spin if you've been content to think of Jesus as just a man, a good example or an inspired teacher. If, in a sense, God doesn't feature much in your consciousness when you think of Jesus. And if that's you, you might have questions about what's been said or the details of what particular texts say or you might have questions about the reliability of the text on which our knowledge of Jesus rests. You know, you might be asking, for example, (laughs) can I really believe that what John has written in the Gospel was spoken by Jesus? If you've got questions, please come and ask. Questions are welcome. Or better, you might think about sitting down with one of the pastors or the elders or a Christian you know and reading through the apostles' witness. In a sense, seeing what they experienced and heard, which convinced them about who Jesus was. But I'm actually running through these sample passages to make the simple point that this is what Christians have always believed from the beginning, that long before it was enshrined in the Nicene Creed, Christians have believed the Lord Jesus who died and rose is the eternal Son of God, the Son who existed with God before the world began and who is God, come into our world by taking on our embodied human life in the womb of Mary. But actually this is also Uh, the answer to the who Jesus is question that is enshrined in the creed. Right at its centre, just as conviction of who Jesus is, is right at the centre of our faith, of our relationship with the living God and of our assurance of eternal life. You see, the creed confesses Jesus in these words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now that's quite a mouthful with a lot of ideas in there. But it's actually a good thing. This confession of Jesus as Son of God is enshrined in the creed for the temptation is always to think too little of Jesus, not to think about him too little, but to think too little of his greatness, to shrink him down to what we can imagine, to adapt him to the limits of our understanding, to what we or our age might feel comfortable with. In fact, it was a challenge to Jesus' greatness that led to the formulation of this creed. So to understand exactly what this confession of Jesus as Son of God means, we're going to ask three questions. So firstly, why did those 4th century bishops who wrote the creed think they needed to say this 
about Jesus. Secondly, what are Christians like us and across the ages confessing in those lines? And thirdly, why should we be thankful, even joyful, that we can make this confession, that we know this to be the truth of Jesus? So why did those fourth-century bishops think they needed to say it? Here we do a little bit of history. Now, to prevent frustration, the map is really just for it's just to make you feel good, to think that there's some kind of geographical reality to this. I don't expect any of us can actually read it. Uh, <coughs> and if it just frustrates you, I'm sorry about that. All right? But this creed is the result of church councils, one in Nicaea, 325 AD, the other in Constantinople in 381. And it's, <coughs> it was, these questions were considered at those councils because at the beginning of the 300s in Alexandria in Egypt there was a bloke called Arius who was a presbyter. Uh, That is, you could think of him as a parish minister in one of the many churches in the city. And he started teaching that Jesus, the son, though exalted, was a creature. He said things like, the son has a beginning, but God's without a beginning. Oh, that the Son was the perfect creature of God created before times and before ages. He that is without beginning made the Son a beginning of things originated and advanced him as a Son to himself by adoption. Or again, to speak in brief, God is ineffable, and I had to look that up too, it just means what it says next, that he's unspeakable, he, he, he can't communicate therefore unknowable. To speak in brief, God is ineffable to his son, for he is to himself what he is. That is unspeakable. Being son, he really existed at the will of the Father. So according to Arius, the son Jesus is an exalted creature, yes, exalted, but still a creature, deriving his existence from the will of God. And so son is just a metaphor to indicate Jesus rank amongst other creatures and Jesus being son of God and his authority depends on the will of the father and not on his nature as the son and being a creature he cannot really know God in himself to make him known to us. Now those of course those of you who are familiar with the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses will recognize that it's actually very similar except they go a bit of a step further. They identify the pre-incarnate Jesus with the archangel Gabriel. Before being born on earth, this is in one of their books, You Can Live Forever, on earth as a man, Jesus had been in heaven as a mighty spirit person. He was created before all the other spirit sons of God and that he is the only one who was directly created by God. Again, you see, the son is a creature exalted by his obedience. And really, he actually, in their view, brings salvation by being an example of obedience and moral transformation, which is why legalism, keeping the rules, is such a feature of Jehovah's Witnesses' lives. Now, Arius's teaching, you know, had its attractions, a, a, a superficial appeal, 
if you don't think too hard about it. It made some texts more understandable, like the father's greater than I. It was easier to think of a creature being transformed into another creature than God becoming man. As a creature, it explained how the son could suffer and die when God can't suffer and die. And in a culture where matter was suspected of being evil and the transcendence of God thought of as an unknowable supreme being behind all things was a feature of popular philosophy, well, Arius's teaching kept God acceptable, uninvolved with creation, with matter and unknowable. But the teaching of Arius was opposed and declared to be unacceptable right from the start. And those who opposed him, yes, they worked through the individual text areas used, but they also pointed out the major faults, faults which are shared today by Jehovah's Witness teaching. And these are some of them. Firstly, this teaching that the son's a creature was seen to be a departure from what was always believed about the son, from the faith once for all delivered to believers by the apostles. You see, for the Son, as you heard, from the beginning was confessed as Scripture taught him, taught him to be, confessed as creator. That is, on the creator side of the creator-creature divide. You heard 1 John 3, John 1, 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created. He was creator, not creature. And there's actually only one creator, God, from the beginning, confessed as God. And secondly, from the beginning, the Son was worshipped. While at the same time the New Testament's very clear, it's wrong to worship a creature. That worship was actually expressed in Scripture in fulfilment of the Father's intention that all honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. We see in Revelation the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, separate from all creation, receiving the praise of heaven and all creation in conjunction with God, with the Father. Then I looked, writes John, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them, every creature, blessing and honour and glory and power. Be to the one seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb forever and ever. Four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. All creation worships the Son. And we know that worship of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was the practice of Christians from the earliest, a practice that sometimes led to their death. Pliny, who was a Roman governor of the province of Bithynia, which is up on the Black Sea around 112 AD, wrote to the Emperor Trajan of his investigation into Christian practices, saying that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns 
a form of words to Christ as a God. The teaching of Arius, that the son's a creature, made this worship idolatry, the worship of a created thing and not the creator. And teaching that the son was a creature was not only a departure, it was actually destructive and is destructive of Christian salvation. It meant that the but meant that believers could not know God for sure. You see, there was always a God behind Arius's son of God, whom the son, being a creature, an intermediary who's not God, whom the son could not know and so cannot make known without distortion. Where the son's a creature, there's no guarantee of either true knowledge of God in the son's words or of a final knowledge of God, a final because full revelation of God. It destroys knowledge of God. Oh, and it means that believers can't be saved. Believers in Jesus can't be saved. You see, it's only as Jesus is God and man that he can be a true mediator who can bring us into the presence of God, who can reconcile us to God, genuinely in himself establish fellowship between humans and gods. Arius's Jesus, an exalted creature, was an intermediary who in the end was neither real man or real God. Can't reconcile us to God. And it's only as Jesus is God and man that Jesus can atone for the sins of the whole world on the cross. You see, the death of one who is a creature is neither effective to save nor moral. It's not effective for creatures die for their own sins, their own deaths. And the death of a creature, however perfect, cannot have an infinite and eternal effect as a substitutionary sacrifice for the life of the creature and its value is finite and neither is it moral for God does not give himself in the son to die but he gives a third person a creature the cost of forgiving is borne by the creature not God and the creature not being God cannot forgive sins against God making the Lord Jesus to be son in name only Teaching that he is an exalted creature is a departure from the faith delivered to us by the apostles and it is destructive of Christian worship, knowledge of God and salvation. Arius' Jesus, the Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus, leaves you ignorant of the living God and in your sin. And it was for these reasons that after years of debate and many meetings, the bishops, both to exclude error and to teach the truth, settled on these words, to confess our faith in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Now, taken as a whole, those words are insisting that the Lord Jesus is the only Son of God, uniquely the Son, because of his unique person, sent into the world to save, 
and that the son who takes on our flesh is really and truly God, son by nature, sharing with the father the creation of the world and that whatever it is to be God, the son is. But let's look at some particular phrases, eternally begotten of the father. Now, this is a phrase descriptive of the son's unique relationship with the father using the words of scripture begotten. It is never meant to suggest (coughs) that the son had a beginning or an origin in the father, either in or outside time, and is therefore less of a God than the father. In fact, those words are used to deny that. So it's not talking about a birth process. And so, of course, it's never meant to suggest any kind kind of physical relationship between God and Mary, as it appears Muhammad misunderstood Christians to believe. Not talking about that at all. What it is, is the phrase is used to assert that the Son is to be distinguished from all created beings who are all made because of this unique relationship which is eternal and never-changing where the Son is always the Son of the Father and the Father always the Father of the Son. But it's a phrase that does suggest a legal relationship where the Son is the heir of the Father, that all that is the Father's also rightly belongs to the Son and a sharing in nature, that all the Father is, the Son is, except the Son is not the Father and the Father's not the Son. And yes, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, never some secondary or lesser or separate God, begotten not made, which is emphatic, ruling out the Son being a creature of one being with the Father. The Son, as the Spirit does, shares with the Father the being of God. In this confession of Jesus, you have the heart of our Trinitarian confession that the living God is three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, one substance. So the divinity of the Son and the Spirit is not less than the Father. And they are not just like the Father in being that could imply separateness, but of one being, distinct, never separate, through whom all things were made. Note the full stop. This is an assertion about Jesus, the Son, that he shares with the Father in creation and all things are made for him and will find their fulfilment in his exaltation. Taken together, this is an emphatic confession that the Son is God and the one God we know and who saves us is Father, Son and Spirit. And we should be thankful for and rejoice in this confession as believers because it it says lots but amongst other things that it says is it says God saves that the Christian faith is not speculation about God not made up but a response to the initiative of the living God who himself has first purposed and then come to save us himself, to rescue us from death and bondage and judgment. And Christian faith is faith in the one and only God, the God who's created all things and who has made himself known to us in his Son. When we are trusting Jesus' words, we're not trusting the words of some intermediary who is not God, 
but God himself speaking to us, the son making the father known, the son promising what only God can do to reconcile us to himself and raise us from the dead. And confessing that the son who became flesh is God is saying to all the world, saying to all the world to hear that at the heart of our faith is glorious love, the love of God, Father and Son for the world, bound up with the eternal and immutable love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, a love that never changes because God is love in himself, a love which is self-giving, as we've seen, that puts the interests of others of fallen creatures before its own. That's what the gospel proclaims, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that verse is only true. And we can only start to sense its immensity where we confess the son to be the eternal word who is God, become flesh. That's when we can start to think about the love of God. And yes, here we start to get a measure of the self-giving of God. To give up, not a creature, but his own beloved son, who is always the son, even on the cross, loved from eternity, to give up this loved son for us who have failed repeatedly in love of God and of those made in his image. Oh yes, and here we get a measure of the self-humbling of the son, equal to God, who voluntarily leaves the glory he had with the Father before the world was made. And it does that out of love for the Father and love for us to embrace the shame and humiliation we could never face, the cross. And so it's in this confession that we have not just the heart of Christian faith but of Christian life. You see, this confession tells us that actually the life of the children of God is like the sun, isn't it? Putting the interests of others ahead of our own. Seeking them, reckoning them more important than ourselves. This confession tells us that being a Christian, repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus means those who humble themselves to tremble at God's word have a sure knowledge of the almighty living God. We can say we know him who made the universe, the Alpha and the Omega. It tells us that repenting and believing the gospel, we have a secure salvation brought by the one mediator who is God and man, the man Christ Jesus, whose death as the Son of God is sufficient to cover over all our sins forever and whose word is the word of God, of the judge on the last day, that promise of forgiveness never to be reversed. Oh, and this confession means we know a gracious God as our Father 
one who is rich in love and who has loved us now and forever with that rich love. And this confession means our present is glorious, where we are welcomed into the relationship of the Father and the Son adopted in Christ. And we have an even more glorious future as those who will see his face transformed to be like the eternal Son to abide in the presence of the Father forever. You see, this is a confession that is worth making and understanding. You see, the world thinks you park your brain at the door when you come to church. But actually to meet God in his word, the living God, is to be challenged not just in your behaviour or your emotions, but in your thinking, in your heart. To meet God in his word is to be willing to allow God through his spirit to take you beyond the limits of what you experience, but one beyond what you can imagine, and to know him in truth in his word, whose love is beyond our understanding. To meet the creator God, for whom the limitations of our body, of our speech, are no limitations on himself making himself known. No limitations to achieving his saving purpose. The one God who in the person of the Son can, for our sake, become man and suffer and die. So let this confession, the confession in the creed, stop you from shrinking the Lord Jesus Let this confession help you keep on recognising and relying on his greatness so that we give him the trust and worship he deserves as the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being for the Father through him all things were made who for us and our salvation became man. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that trusting your Son, we would see more and more your glory in his face. We pray that we would grow in understanding of who Jesus is so that we would trust him, so that we would know more and more of your love, the love of God for us, and that we would be more and more confident in him and thankful for the privilege of confessing that he is Lord and being your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.